my wife reminded me that um, as I was writing the sermon that it was going to be on the World Wide Web. So if I pass out, I'm going to need some strong young men to get my backside off of here and get me some fresh air, okay? All right, counting on you. So, you know, we started out the day uh, listening to Guy's sermon or a lesson about the church. And I uh, really appreciated that because I, uh, since coming here, there's been a richness of lessons from, uh, from brothers and sisters who, you know, just know the Bible really well. And I appreciate that. I appreciate so much the, um, just the depth and the heart. And I also think that, uh, you know, noticing differences, like, uh, it's funny because guy, you know, you, you come up and uh, sometimes folks get quiet and, uh, and that's not something I'm used to. So, you know, if you feel like saying something to me, just shout. It's okay. I won't, I won't call on you or, but uh, I appreciate all of that. The, um, the lesson that I'm going to be giving today is the last lesson in the series, Dead Men Tell Tales, that Andrew's been going over the last few weeks. And um, I normally wouldn't do this, but since sometimes I'm a little bit of a scattered thinker, I, I'm going to just tell you kind of how I structured it, just so you can follow along with me. So there's going to be three parts. And... We're going to, the focus on the lesson is the truth. And we're going to have uh, the, the truth undermined, the truth unveiled, and part three is going to be the truth unleashed. So that's how I'm going to follow along. The, the first part in the truth undermined, we'd like to do a little bit of an exploration on, on what truth is, you know, before we can understand. And I think over the last few weeks, we've, we've talked about how it was undermined, right? You know, we have uh, folks that uh, oppose themselves to, uh, uh, to Caleb and uh, Joshua and Moses. And, you know, we'll talk about that a little more, but if you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 18, verse 37, we'll start out with Jesus standing in front of Pilate, you know, he brought him back into the, into his, his office. He wanted to talk with him. And Jesus answered him, in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate responded, what is truth? With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now, interestingly, when you teach something, you get a little bit of a different perspective than when you read it, right? So I was thinking about this a little bit. And, you know, Pilate was a Roman governor. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a centurion. He wasn't a soldier. He might have had some 
you know, military uh, background, but he was a governor and he's a pretty educated guy, you know, for they didn't just put a governor down there in, in, uh, to govern one of the toughest spots in the Roman Empire because you're a dummy. Right. So they sent him. They, they put him through a lot of training. And it's likely that Pilate was being a good Roman. He was uh, versed in the classics, in the Greek classics. So he knew Aristotle. He knew Plato. He had read Homer. Right. And the thing that stands out in his answer is the relativism of intellectuality. Right. He answered him. And I don't think he was being a wise guy. He said, what is truth? He was asking him, you know, sort of sarcastically, but also he's this guy's talking about the truth. He's not used to hearing that. He said, what is truth? Right. So, you know, we see that today in, you know, especially in intellectual circles where, you know, truth is sort of not really discussed. Right. It's more a matter of a fact. Right. So. You don't have to turn here, but I'm going to read it in John 8, 31 through 32. Jesus, uh, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth. Again, keeps talking about the truth and the truth shall make you free. Okay, so whatever this truth is that he's talking about gives freedom. I don't know about you, but a lot of times from a worldly perspective, I might talk about like justice. You know, you're in jail. You know, you're looking for the truth so that you can be set free from jail. Right. That's our perspective. So we'll explore that a little more. Because the truth is and it's kind of a funny word and we use it very loosely. We're led to believe that fact gathering tools are truth. Believe the science, we're frequently told. Now, science is a great thing and I love science. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And uh, but has science ever led to truth? You know, when Glenn was giving um, the uh, the Lord's table before, and we were he had talked about the uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and it's an interesting dialogue. It's one of the most interesting dialogues in the New Testament, in my opinion. But you know, you can basically Jesus used to get people's attention by giving them truth, <laughs> and then he would verify that with fact. Right. So if you look at the conversation on what happened with the Samaritan woman, you've got on one side, you've got, you know, well, these are the facts. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. You're a man. I'm a woman. Right. It's noontime. I'm here at the well. I'm probably trying to avoid people. Those are all facts. Right. But. Jesus. Told her. A truth. Right. He said, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd be asking me for water. Right. That's the truth. Right. That can't be proved by science. Right. There was nothing that you can say, hey, let me, you know, show me mathematically how that works. He was telling her a spiritual truth because that is a fact. Right. Uh, a spiritual truth. Uh, 
Now, when he said that she needed proof, he went to facts. Well, you've had five husbands and the one that you're married to is not your husband. Wow. You had my attention at hello, right? And now, and now this man knows all about me. And here's this woman who was a pariah to society that went back. And what did she do? She wound up gathering all the people in the town to come and see Jesus, right? She got so excited about it, right? She could not help herself. It was an amazing discussion. So I took an AP biology course um, from the head of biology department at University of New Hampshire. And uh, I, believe, I believe the man you know, wasn't a believer, but he started out defining that science was not truth, nor did it reveal truth. He said that science was a tool in the pursuit of discovery of the natural world, which leads to greater understanding and ultimately more questions. But it will never lead to truth. That's what he said. And I so appreciated that honesty you know, from a, from a scientist and, and especially a non-believer, right? Because he was being honest about the limitations of his art. Science can help uncover observable facts, but it, it, it doesn't determine motives. It can't explain the most basic human characteristics like love and self-sacrifice, spirituality and grief and the spirit world. Similar uh, concepts, if you guys ever heard of uh, Dr. John Lennox, um, he's a, a Christian apologist, uh, brilliant man, but he, he had said similar things. You know, he appreciates science, but as a Christian, he understands that there's greater truths that science can't answer. As it says in Isaiah 55, 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God also says in Isaiah, if you guys want to turn there, um, in Isaiah 29, 14. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among his people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of the wise, the wisdom of the wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Not only is our understanding of the world that we lived in flawed because of our limited view, but we also have a skewed sense of history. We don't even seem to learn well from our past mistakes or can even agree on what history taught because we can't even agree on the facts that transpired, right? I mean, look at all the arguments that are happening right now. I, I mean, I look at my own life and I've had, I've had folks come up to me and say, hey, do you remember when you said this? And I'm just like, I don't remember, right? That I said that. It was almost like I must be losing my mind or, you know, something's happening. I can't remember. But can you imagine trying to piece together something that happened 100 years ago or 200 years ago or 1,000 years ago? It's amazing, right? What is truth indeed? History constantly repeats itself. And we have a tendency to use the word unprecedented, especially these days in political circles. You see it used all the time when the press either, either tries to justify or destroy uh, a political figure. We've heard the word used a lot 
and applied to cancel culture, you know, that cancel culture is unprecedented. You know, the idea of, of, um, of ostracizing, expelling, or marginalizing a person or group with whom you disagree, or that doesn't adhere to a philosophy, a social norm, or a behavior, or that you consider a threat, right? That's cancel culture. And we've seen that a lot lately, especially. I've heard that cancel culture today is unprecedented. Well, is it? I don't think so. I think we've just forgotten for the moment, I guess. Uh, this amnesia that we have is perfectly captured in Ecclesiastes. If you want to turn there uh, in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1, verse 9. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. Now, this strikes me because this is ancient text, right? And he's talking about ancient times before us. We don't even know what was written before that. We don't even know what he's referring to. But there's something that was there, right, that Solomon, arguably, who wrote this, said that, uh, that there, it was there. There is no remembrance of former things. That should make Guy feel better. Nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. Wow. So all the Greek understanding of glory and that your name will be remembered, right, is for the wind. It's a vanity and a chasing after the wind, according to Ecclesiastes. Many of us have forgotten or maybe never learned this in U.S. history, because I don't remember learning this in school. I heard about it afterwards, right? In 1856, a U.S. senator once took to another senator's head with a cane on the Senate floor and rendered him a cripple, right? It was over, over anti-slavery. Um, so when things today get a little heated in the Senate, we say, oh, that's unprecedented, right? Is anybody remembering Sumner and, and, and the beating he got with a cane? I mean, it's certainly there's precedent, right? We've also forgotten our biblical history. Uh, that Haman not only tried to kill Mordecai in the book of Esther, but tried to annihilate all the Jews. The world thinks Hitler was unique in his anti-Semitism. Right? How's that for cancel culture? How about canceling Daniel in the lion's den? Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, in the furnace? What about sending Uriah to die on the battlefield so that David didn't have to deal with shaming himself over his adultery? What about all the prophets of the Old Testament being killed for telling the truth? And in Acts, all the atrocities that Saul did to the Christians to silence them, to cancel them. 
We touched on a few case studies before, but it wasn't comprehensive, right? Because the Bible is full of innocent truth tellers that needed canceling by the powerful. For the last four decades, we've been obsessed with forensics because that's kind of a science, right? It's called forensic science. Uh, starting with Perry Mason and Dragnet to today's CSI and Law and Order. The fact that we think we've gotten really smart about who done it allows us to give ourselves a pat on the back and feel good and safe. The truth is that despite the awesome resolution that many shows seem to demonstrate, outside of Hollywood, fewer murders actually get solved than you might think. According to the FBI, you have a 40% chance of getting away with murder. That's 40% of murders go unsolved. It doesn't make you feel very safe, does it? I was kind of shocked by that. I would have thought it was 10%. You know, uh, we have all this DNA evidence. We've got all the science. We've got satellites that can tell where you are. We've got phones that know where you are at every moment. You'd think it was more than 40%. You know, everybody has a phone, right? We're all trackable, right? But no, 40%, 40% of murders go unsolved. Science seems to fail in the one job that we think should make things clear. Just the facts, ma'am. Now, I know some of younger folks might not get that, but I remember that. Um, when we use the phrase, dead men don't tell tales, and that's different than you know, the, uh, the series name, uh, what exactly are we referring to? Murder, right? That's what we're referring to. There's an inability to get what one wants through the reality of a situation. So we humans resort to a barbaric method to get what we want and to achieve an end. What is murder exactly? What is it that you have 40% chance of getting away with? Arguably, it's one of the worst sins committed towards another person as it ends life on earth. Remember, when we're talking about murder, God's bar is different than ours, right? God said that when he was talking on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if you even hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart, right? Which I think at some point, you know, who, you know, we start to split hairs. Well, who's my brother? You know, <laughs> who exactly are you talking about, Jesus? Is it, is it my brother, really? My blood brother? Is it somebody in the church? Is it somebody at work? Who's my brother, right? We start to get like that because we don't want to be called murderers, right? That's not cool, right? We don't want to think of ourselves that way. Miriam Webster defines murder as the crime of unlawfully killing a person, especially with malice, a forethought. That's a big word. It's an old word. I didn't really, I wasn't sure because uh, I didn't want to assume because sometimes I get it wrong. So here's the definition of a forethought. Previously in mind, premeditated, deliberate. In other words, it's got to be planned and on purpose. Murder has been used since the beginning of time as a tool for achieving an end. Revenge, power, lust, greed, and the list goes on. 
Where do we see it first in the Bible? Cain and Abel, right? God warned Cain. If you guys want to turn there, I'm going to be referring to Genesis uh, chapter 4, verse 6. Actually, sometimes I find that it takes longer to find a, a Bible verse on my phone than it is to turn the old-fashioned way. Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at your door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Which leads me to the second part, the truth unveiled. Andrew discussed in his previous sermons that Caleb, Joshua, Lazarus, and Jesus were all conspired against with malice and aforethought, right? But here's the catch. You see, all the perps in these cases did wrong because they weighed out the consequences, like we all do, right? We all do our little, our little pros and cons list in our head, even subconsciously. They thought to themselves, like Pilate, you know, when he's listening to Jesus and he's, what is truth? They're all thinking to themselves, well, maybe this God is like the other gods I know about. You know, it's kind of hit or miss. You know, sometimes you pray and it rains and sometimes you don't. Sometimes I get caught, sometimes I don't. You know, maybe I got a 40% chance of getting away with it, right? It's maybe they talk to the FBI. I don't know. But the, uh, you know, the fact is that they, they, they thought that, uh, that they could get away with it and they took the chance, you know, go big or go home. Let's turn to Genesis 9, 5. Good. Okay. After God wiped out the earth, with the flood, and he saved Noah and his family. He made a new covenant with mankind. And the first thing he did was he gave him the right to hunt. Thank you, God. But then he warned them, surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, and from, and from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. See, God was explaining to Noah how things were from the very beginning of time. He would demand a reckoning for the blood of his people, even if it was from an animal. Going back to Cain's story, he was sure he was going to get away with it. But as the story continues in Genesis 4.10, and he, God, said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. God warned us long ago that the death of his children could not and will not be silenced. The wrong that's done to them will come out despite the most extreme measures to hide it. 
Cancel culture doesn't work with the truth. It never did, and it never will. The gospel was spread around the world despite all the efforts for people to sabotage it throughout history. Let's turn to Acts 22. We'll start in, uh, in verse six in a second. Saul of Tarsus, some people say Tarshish, I don't know which is the correct uh, pronunciation, uh, renamed Paul, as we know him, retells the incident that happened to him in Acts. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Did you notice that God didn't say, why are you persecuting my people? What did he say instead? Why are you persecuting me? The God of the universe not only noticed his people suffering, but he actually intervened and did something about it. He took the offense personally. The attempts to cancel his people were an attempt to cancel him. The insults rendered to his people were an assault on him. The death of the people was killing him. He took it personally, and he told that to Paul. Unfortunately, Paul changed his life. In Deuteronomy, because yeah, I, what, I, what I want to say here is that, you know, the fact that he did that to Paul was in the New Testament. But is that something that's necessarily new, right? Did God all of a sudden change his ways and come out and say, oh, I'm going to intervene here because, you know, such, such great harm is being done to the people, to my servants right now. Am I going to do that? No, just like he did before, just like he said to Noah and he made his new covenant with Noah. It had been written. It was already written. In Deuteronomy 32, Verse 43, he promised to the Jews and the Gentiles, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries, and he will provide atonement for his land and his people. Are you guys with me so far? Okay. The title is The Fifth Seal, The Cry of the Martyrs. So hopefully Andrew agrees with this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. You know, they were calling him out on his promise. You promised this. How long, God? 
You're holy, you're true, you're just. How long do we have to wait? Then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a while, a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. So who are these additional people that were going to be killed? Who is he referring to? Let's turn to Romans 6. The same Saul from before, the one who was persecuting Jesus of Nazareth, but now as a new man, writes, What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Or do you not know that many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus, into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Just that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, or some translations person, okay, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed. From sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Church, do you see how this all comes together? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why? Because just what we read, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. That's what he was trying to say to Pilate. You know, Pilate asked him, what is truth? And he was literally looking at truth in the eyes. And like everybody before him, he was about to go through the motions of killing truth. He was going to put truth to death. And why was he going to put truth to death? Out of fear. He was afraid of cancel culture. He was afraid of being canceled. He was afraid of being overrun by the locals. He was afraid of being judged, you know, by his, uh, if, he, if he put his foot down, even if there wasn't an insurrection, somebody would come back and question him. Why did you do this? Right? He was afraid. Jesus said, the truth shall make you free. Why? 
what we just read. For he who has died has been freed from sin. The blood cries from the ground and has been avenged and reconciled. Why? Because therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. So who are the martyrs? that are yet to be killed. Can anybody answer that question? It's us, brothers and sisters. We're the ones. We're the ones who've died in Christ and in fact are the dead men and women who tell tales. We cannot be silenced. We're like the stones that Jesus referred to in Luke 19.40. I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. The minute they try to cancel the truth, okay, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come out. It's like a pressure that's coming from God. You can't stop it. God, in his infinite mercy and power, made a creation for us all, like it says in Romans 1.20, so that mankind is without excuse. That's by his creation. If we study it through science, it's clear that it wasn't a mistake. It's mathematically impossible. Man is without excuse. If that wasn't enough, he ended the stranglehold of sin on us so we can live full lives without the law. We don't even have the pressure of the law. And if that wasn't enough, he defeated death so that we shouldn't fear it, and we shouldn't fear people that threaten us with it. And if that wasn't enough, he pledged to stand with us and avenge any bully who tries to stop us or cancel us as if they're doing it directly to him. Think about it. What should our response be to this? How should we act? What should our lives represent knowing this? How should we react to cancel culture? How should we react when we have a chance to share our faith at work? How should we act when we're praying for our food at a restaurant? How should we act when someone says, hey, I need something? Shouldn't the gospel be pouring out of our mouths every chance we get? Shouldn't we try to share it with as many people as possible before the race is done? Thanks for listening and God bless you all.